Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. If you're listening for the first time, thank you for joining us. This is the show where we talk about the early stage cannabis investment industry, the founders and investors that are moving it forward. Today on the show, we have Green Acre Capital, which is a Canadian fund, and they are focused solely on Canada. In their opinion, the US is behind, it's harder to invest, it's harder to get your money out. And so they've made some big investments in Afria, one of the 51 licensed cultivators in Canada, as well as Tokyo Smoke, a company that was just on the show uh, a couple weeks ago. It's a fascinating conversation about how they look at the industry and how they go through due diligence and evaluating investments. You're gonna learn a ton, guys. This one. Is great if you're trying to raise money if you're a founder looking to raise money for funds tune in listen up get acquainted all right well matt thanks so much for joining us really nice to have you on i got a chance to do quite a bit of research into what you guys do uh, and right on your website it says that you only focus on the canadian market and i asked myself why would a fund only focus on canada how did you guys uh come to that decision I think it's a bit of a simplification. I mean, Canada is definitely our focus in that the majority of our investments I expect to be made into Canadian domiciled businesses, but we're also looking outside of Canada at ancillary opportunities and reason for that being obviously the the, the, the depth of companies that exist in the States and abroad that have been established even longer than some of these Canadian businesses have been. But what we're really looking to build is a bit of an ecosystem amongst the dozen or so companies in which we invest that we think we can help them be successful. I think a lot of companies in the market in Canada can leverage the same customers, the same partners, um, you know, can, 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 can do business with one another. So if we find opportunities outside of Canada that, that can be strategic to that ecosystem, we'll make those investments. You know, an example I would point to would be a, a, a US-based cannabis software company that we think we could help launch and be very successful in the Canadian market. We'd be willing to make that investment, but we're not looking to invest in a Colorado state cultivator that that wouldn't be strategic to any of our other investments because we think it's harder for us to add value. I see. So that uh, synergy to use a buzzword, I suppose. Yeah, there certainly is a good track record of uh, you know, Canada royalty coming into the U.S. And, and making quite a few investments. We'll see how those turn out. But yeah, there certainly is precedent there. Uh, yeah, let's talk a couple uh, about a couple of those investments that you've made. Uh, you guys were super early in Afria. Uh, and besides being a public company and one of the, the better known cannabis brands today, what was it early on about Afria that, that got you excited? Yeah, so we were investors in Afria before Green Acre Capital actually even existed. Um, that was through a Toronto-based family office with, with which I've worked very closely for about eight years. And it was the differentiator. That would have been early early 2014 they did a raise. And then back again in mid-2014 they did a second raise before they had gone public. And we were really attracted to the management team, I'll be quite honest with you. We thought that uh, Vic Newfeld's pedigree and track record spoke for itself. His His two partners, John and Cole, who were large-scale greenhouse cultivators of potted plants and vegetables for decades and had, you know, built and grown and run successful businesses themselves. Um, you know, we thought it was a great team. We, they were able to convince us very quickly that uh, greenhouse-grown product, at least for the Canadian market, um, would be the lowest-cost product on the market, which, mm -hmm. you know, our view is will be quite important long-term in that, you know, I, I'd say to put a simplistic comparison out there, you know, I view the market in Canada becoming more like the beer market is where I think, you know, you'll have a handful of large beer conglomerates 
that uh, dominate the market, and then you'll have you know dozens of kind of craft beer companies or craft growers that I think will also have their place in the market. But I think the majority of the of market share and and a, and a big chunk of the profitability will, will be held by a handful of of larger players. So our, our view back then was that Afria would be one of these larger players. Now I'll also be the first to tell you that in early to mid fourteen, when you're making investments in the Canada space in Canada, you know you're investing only in a medically federally medically legal cannabis market with the thought that you know potentially eventually there'd be some form of federal adult use regulations in place but uh, I, I, I would I would be lying to you if I told you we were of the expectation that that was going to happen by the end of 15 so I think you know we got a little bit lucky there too but I, I still feel that we would have been very happy with the, that early stage of free investment even in a medical only market in Canada and it, and it was that large investment early on that got us really interested in the industry that uh, allowed us to follow the space much more quickly and, 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 and encouraged me to start spending all of my time in the industry about a year and a half ago, um, which led us to the, to the realization that our thought is, is that the next wave of intelligent investment in the, can, in the Canadian cannabis industry will be in the ancillary side of the space. And I think in Canada, at least the majority of the investor dollars have flown into the cultivators. But I think if you just look at how, how the market has worked in any other adult use legal market in the states for example the price of wholesale cannabis gets commoditized quite quickly and the, a lot of the cultivators have gotten squeezed the majority of the margin and profitability has come from other parts of the chain which i think is is similar to any type of of, of farmed or cultivated crop in that typically the farmer is not the one that's being able to extract the majority of the value from that crop it's mm. the person that's wholesaling distributing processing you know value-added processing packaging branding retailing that product that's that, that, that that's making more margin so those are the types of companies and opportunities we've decided we'd like to invest in which led to the launch of, of green acre capital to focus on those opportunities specifically yeah i want to get into the other ancillary uh, businesses for sure but just to just to sum up sort of a, a fria here how important is it? Correct me if I'm wrong. There's only 50 cultivator licenses in. I think there's in 51 as of last week. They seem 51. to be doing a few more a week at this point, which is. Got to update my info. Producer okay. error. Producer you got to check every day to stay up on this one. <laughs> I know. It's kind of crazy every day there is there's cannabis news now, which is very exciting. But um, so, Afria, uh, why. Uh, how important is that to have one of those 51 licenses? I mean, for me, it seems to significantly de-risk uh, the investment. That's certainly the perception, I think, in the in the investment world. But how important is that to you still today? I think there's definitely a high level of importance, but I actually think that you know getting license 52 is significantly less valuable than having gotten license 12. And, and, and not so much because of just one in time it, it, it happened, but I think the companies that got licensed earlier on that took a more aggressive growth stance that have raised an abundance of capital to fully fund their, their expansions uh, to be prepared for the adult use market, I think that they're much better positioned than companies that have just recently been, been licensed or will soon be licensed. I think there's a, you know, a five or six large producers that are, that are really cashed up, that are you know, well into their their, their 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 massive expansion projects, and I really do think it's going to be hard for the remainder of of the even already licensed producers to compete with those big five or six companies um, as the market gets going. Yeah, no, very very interesting. Um, one of your other investments here uh, that I just recently had the on the show was a company called Tokyo Smoke, uh, which 
comes at things from a very different perspective than than most cannabis companies I've run into. What was it about Tokyo Smoke and sort of their model and their head shops and their brand that really was uh, appealing to you? It's a, it's a great question. Um, maybe I'll go back a quick step and even explain what Tokyo sure. Smoke does for those that aren't familiar. So Tokyo Smoke uh, started off in Toronto opening a few high-end coffee shops, and their, 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 their plans are to open many more locations over the next couple of years, mainly across Canada, but in a few select international markets as well. And what these are is they're, they're high-end coffee shops, and then on the other side of the store, instead of selling a, a teapot or a coffee mug like a Starbucks may, they sell high-end curated hardware and accessories. Think, you know, high-end vaporizers, high-end ashtrays, you know, very nicely curated products, and even a bit of, of, uh, of, of higher-end uh, clothing. And at first glance, you'd say this is the craziest idea ever. Well, you know, why is somebody doing this? And I think as you dig a little bit deeper, the way that their CEO, Alan Gertner, will explain it is, is that if you look at the way that the coffee market evolved over the last few decades, you know, decades ago, coffee was viewed as, as being good if it was just strong, if it was strong black coffee. And obviously, consumer perception changed over the years as, you know, other coffee shops and marketers entered the space to convince you that that, that wasn't what made coffee good. And I think you know, his view, and I'd say I agree with him, is that, that that a lot of that perception seems to be the same for cannabis right now, that a lot of the market cons- considers cannabis to be good if it's very strong, if it's very high in THC, if it, mm-hmm. if, if it hits you, you know, hard. And I, I think that it's only natural for that to evolve over time. So I think the parallels between the coffee market and the cannabis market are strong. I think that, you know, by, by offering those types of products in a beautifully designed coffee shop that that nobody's afraid to walk into as opposed to a a, a head shop that you know hadn't spent much money on their on the, the the build out or design of the location you know it's got you know cannabis flags and marley flags hanging in the front of the store like you know there's a subset of the population that's probably not in a rush to walk into that store but i don't think you have those same issues with tokyo smoke so so that's kind of the store level but i think what's much more important here and better and, and worth understanding is that you know, their, 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 their visions aren't just to be able to make a bunch of money off opening a bunch of coffee shop, head shops. It's really to use those locations to build a brand. So, you know, getting back to my beer analogy, the way I would look at it is like a, like a craft brewery uses a microbrewery restaurant, which is, you know, I'm sure they'd, they'd love to make a little bit of money off the restaurant, but more important to them is to use that, that location to build that local brand presence, um, you know, fairly inexpensively, sometimes profitably. To build your local brand presence, so Tokyo Smoke's intention is to use these locations to build their local brand presence in, within the markets in which they operate, and then just like a craft brewery wants to have their beer sold on the shelves of wherever beer is sold, uh, Tokyo Smoke will want to have their own um, private labeled strains of cannabis, their own private labeled hardware, eventually their own private labeled edibles, etc., sold on the shelves of wherever those products are sold. I think in certain provinces, they may even be able to sell those products on their own store shelves, but. The much bigger opportunity here is really the brand that they're building and the ability to then uh, license that brand to, to to carry products across the country and into other countries as well. So mm-hmm. the, the much more interesting opportunity here is around that branding. That, that, that That's where there's there, there's the, the real likelihood of them, in my view, being able to generate significant revenue. And I think what, what really differentiates them from, from competitors is, A, that they've been at it for a few years, whereas you know some of these newer brands trying to enter are just launching now, and B, think their management team is is stellar has a fantastic track record and I, I believe um, will will position themselves to become a very valuable company in in, in pretty short order 
Yeah, absolutely. He uh, he compared himself to Starbucks, which which, uh, which I love. You got to love the uh, the founder struggle there and hustle. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I found Tokyo very very interesting. Um, undoubtedly, they will be selling cannabis, even though they they don't do that today. That's certainly got to be part of the plan. Uh, how big can that business be, though? You talked about revenues a little bit. I mean, how many of these stores? Would you like to see them open? And yeah, how big of a business can that be? I, I, I could see a couple dozen locations just in Canada. Um, and obviously, as this movement continues internationally, I think you could see you know multi, many multiples of that. Um, but then, even if you just look at it, like I would, you know, very very simply, back of the envelope, value the the the, the cannabis industry in Canada to be around a ten billion dollar market within a few years. Um, that's just for a cannabis product. I think if you I think Deloitte had done research last year that it pegged the market size in Canada alone at over $22 billion if you include the ancillary products and services. But even just focusing on that $10 billion of, of cannabis product that, that we estimate, I think um, it would be quite reasonable to expect 20, 30, 40, 50% of that product to be some form of branded product now with the caveat that I, I very much expect, and all indications thus far have pointed to the fact that the government will be will be strictly regulating how these products are marketed and branded. But I do think that um, some form of marketing and branding, whether that even be at a minimum having a local local presence of of coffee shops, um, could generate you know billions of dollars in revenue. I'm I'm not by any means saying that I think that Tokyo Smoke will be able to grab billions of dollars of revenue in Canada, but I think you know. Even a very small portion of market share in the Canadian market will be worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Big, big market. All you got to do is get your little piece. Uh, but if Tokyo Smoke is going to eventually sell cannabis and hopefully millions and millions of dollars yeah. of cannabis, how does that relate back to your strategy of the ancillary model? I mean, now you've got Afria and Tokyo Smoke, presumably that are all going to be selling a lot of cannabis. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think, and so for, first of all, so a free, we don't uh, Green Acre doesn't hold any investments in any cultivators. Fria is actually a uh, shareholder in Green Acre. We've become a bit of a business development oh, arm for them to see earlier stage opportunities and companies that we're coming across, and they've become a great source of of diligence on investments we're making and, and a great potential customer for a lot of the companies in which we've invested. Um, we have no issue in Canada with with plant touching investments, um, I would say ancillary, maybe I oversimplified it by saying ancillary, I'd say more non-cultivation, just tied to our view that as, cult, as, as cannabis gets commoditized, I think those cultivation investments um, you know, will, will be more challenged. So I, I have no issue owning uh, cannabis retail in Canada, for example, because I think the margins will be strong. I think in certain provinces, we'll be able to privately own retail. So, so I, I, uh, I have no issue at all with, uh, with Tokyo Smoke uh, being able to hopefully sell cannabis in some of their stores in certain provinces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that that totally makes sense. Um, tell me a little bit more about the thesis. You know, wh how many deals you want to make a year? What, what's kind of the deal size that you're looking for? Uh, you know, take me through kind of the structure a little bit. Yeah, so we really got started at the beginning of this of this year, the beginning of 2017, uh, in terms of getting out there and fundraising to to to, to deploy. And our, our vision then, and I'd say remains unchanged, is was the expectation that we'd We'd like to raise around twenty million dollars, which which we've we've since exceeded, and congratulations. Thanks very much, and and looking to deploy that capital into 
12 to 15 opportunities between uh, then, which was January, and I'd say the end of, uh, of 2018. So over that 24-month period to look to deploy, um, you know, somewhere over $20 million into, into a dozen to 15 opportunities. And uh, right. I'd say right now we're, we're on track to, to deploy at that, at that pace. So maybe like a million or a million and a half dollar minimum in, in each deal. That's pretty good check size. Yeah, I'd say it is, especially for the, uh, you know, periphery or ancillary type businesses in, in Canada. So I, I, that, that's kind of why we had targeted the fund size we did in that. It, we think it's enough to make us to make us players in the, in the market in which we'd like to play. I mean, relative to some of these LPs who have north of $100 million of cash on their balance sheet, it doesn't seem like very much. But I think, you know, w when you target that investment at very specific opportunities and very specific parts of the market, I think it can be, it can be meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about more specifically what that looks like. What are you looking at today? What, what gets you excited? What, what's next? Yeah. So another investment we've completed is in a, in a company called Ample Organics. They're a seed to sale software tracking company in, uh, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it's a company that very few people have heard of, but it's a company that somewhere around half of the existing licensed producers are using their software to track, um, the, you know, to, to, to as essentially a full ERP for their operation. So if you th if, to think about it logically, from the time a plant is a little seedling all the way to a full-grown plant, it's typically individually barcoded and tracked through the whole facility because the Health Canada restrictions and traceability are so stringent. And then by the time it's dried and batched and bottled, it's still tracked through the facility. If a patient calls in or replaces their, 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 their prescription order, it, uh, it would kick out a trigger the kick out of a, of a label from a label maker in the fulfillment room to then pull it for someone to then pull and pack that order, slap the label on it and ship it. So kind of full service uh, software offering, which mm -hmm. is obviously a in very integral part of these companies' businesses and ample to their credit. I think, you know, they built the system from the ground up um, because the Canadian regs were so unique and there wasn't really an out of the box solution that was very effective for a lot of producers. So, mm -hmm. so they've been growing like crazy. It's an integral piece of, of a producer's business. I think there's opportunities for them to further expand the product line and offering into other parts of the market as as it evolves in Canada and I think they're you know they're, they're a bit of the lifeblood of the industry and it's they've got a great management team and it's another another one of those investments that we feel very strongly about today and and uh, we think that over the long term that company is going to do great things. Yeah seed to sale is a very uh, hot button issue here in, in California where I am as we look towards 2018 and kind of what recreationally is going to look like uh, and it is very competitive space. Uh, as a result of that. Um, I mean, I could just the top of my head, there's four or five startups I know that all have great teams and, uh, you know, great early traction, although sounds like they have about half uh, Ample does in, in Canada, which is which is great early kind of traction. But, you know, how do you evaluate a software company? I mean, how, how do you, uh, what, what was important about that team and what they were doing? You know, um, yeah, how'd you get excited about that one? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I would say you're you're absolutely right. There's you know there's a good handful of companies in the states that are that are that are focused on this. A few that have been around a little bit longer, a few that are a little bit newer. But I don't think you've seen anybody in the states. At least I haven't come across anybody in the states that's really been dominant in a market yet, or been able to really show that that how the scalability of their product, or be able to even charge enough for that product to make it to make it meaningful. And I think those are all things that Ample's been able to do in the Canadian market. And I think that. You know, from our perspective, uh, on the software side of the business, I think revenue is very important, and the the speed at which that revenue is increasing, the the total addressable market within which we you know we we believe there to be, and 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 the 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 capabilities and ability of the of the team management team in place to 
to execute on that plan. And I think you know all of those boxes were checked off by by uh, by the Ample team, and it's it's a, it's an investment we feel quite strongly about. And we look forward to being there to help them as they continue to grow and scale up their business. Yeah, let's talk about just a little bit how how you in uh, evaluate companies internally. You know, what what kind of the process like? Where does the deal flow come from? How is it evaluated? How many rounds do they go through? Take me through that process before you invest a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So we're actually very fortunate now in that the majority of our deal flow at this point is is actually inbound. Um, you know, whether that be through our website, but more often than not through our network of contacts. Um, we've been in front of a lot of the law firms and accounting firms in, in the Canadian market that have been active in the space to, to tell them who we are and what we're doing and if they have clients that, that are looking to raise that they think might be of interest to us to send them our way. Um, you know, it, it, through a combination of a lot of ways, we're able to see a decent amount of deal flow. We probably see 10 or 12 investment opportunities a week right now. Um, now, having said that, there's certainly a decent number of those that, that right off the surface aren't of, aren't of much interest to us. But So I'd say, you know, in terms of... Uh, deal vetting process there's you know if, if the number is 10 opportunities a week that are coming in i think there's you know six or seven of those opportunities probably requires just a a quick review of the email or the deck that was sent over and and and, and, and it may be a quick determination that it's not of interest to us maybe mm -hmm. it's in a market we're not focused on or in a vertical we're not focused on or or too early um you know we we do run into that a lot where there's where businesses that are just you know raising more of a seed raise and you know that's it's typically too early for us to get involved just based on the kind of minimum check size we'd be looking to write um, when we when we enter a position. So I'd say we're more, you know, closer to Series A style investors, but obviously there's a bit of flexibility there depending on the type of company and, and where they're at. But mm -hmm. um, so then if there's another kind of three or so, invest, three to four investments a week that, that we think we want to dig deeper into, depending on where they're located to set up either a call or a meeting. And I'd say of those three or four a week that, you know, we've done a, a call or meeting with management, I'd say maybe two of them turn into deals we want to dig deeper into. And then, you know, maybe two, you know, on, on, on those two deals, maybe one of them requires a, a few more calls or a bit more digging in. And then one of them could require um, weeks or months of, of further digging and diligence. And then for us to actually complete an investment in a company, I think, you know, there's a much deeper diligence process required. There's a much deeper, um, you know, we'll build a, a financial model internally to model out um, you know what we think are with reasonable assumptions with the, where the company could grow to what we think that could mean for an exit trying to understand who a, you know what that exit looks like um, mm -hmm. is it a, is it a, is it a possibility for this company to go public is there is it possibility for it to get purchased by an LP I, I actually really do believe that a lot of investments we're making in the next year and a half or so um, could be into entities that end up getting getting picked up by LPs you know largely tied to our thesis that as as, as dried cannabis gets commoditized, I think a lot of the producers will vertically integrate into other parts of the value chain to be able to keep a handle on those types of you know, margins that they've been able to enjoy. Yeah, the the target of your fund is probably my my favorite in the industry, sort of the seed plus A minus uh, realm. Uh, and I find that it's right sort of on the chasm of uh, a judgment call you know, how much you like the team, the founder, and intuition. The, the and team is definitely the most important determining factor in this industry. I mean, I would say in any industry, really, but um, that's typically one of the ways by which we're also able to quickly vet a deal. If, if the, the caliber of the team just doesn't appear to be there, um, it becomes a challenge for us to get there on an investment. Now, I don't think the team has to be flawless or ha have every single 
um, I dotted or, or T crossed because I think part of what we look to offer aside from just you know investing in a business is to be able to help some of these earlier stage teams so let's say maybe, maybe they have a gap in in finance and as they grow they're gonna need a good CFO you know we can help them find that CFO or we can at least help them between now and the time in which that they do so you know there's some flexibility there but I'd say without a doubt the caliber of the team is is by far our largest uh, determining factor in making an investment. Interesting. So uh, you're saying you would select a solid team or a group of founders over a company that potentially had more traction? I, yeah, I think so for sure. I, th- I just think, we, and we've even seen it and we've passed on deals that were, where there was traction that I just thought, um, you know, the, the existing management team was able to get it to, to this point, but it, we struggled to see how the existing management team could get it to the, to the next level. Um, so yeah, I, I think without a doubt, there's there's opportunities that uh, in the space where it's just difficult to get there based on uh, based on the, the the team the management team in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to go back to the process a little bit. There's a lot of founders uh, that listen to this show, and what they're all wondering to themselves is when you get those decks, when you get emails, when you get reached out to. What are some of the red flags? I mean, what do you see over and over from people that that want to get a hold of you or, or, or want a meeting? What, what mistakes do they make? I'd say in in a deck, a mistake that's commonly made is, um, I, we quickly become uninterested if if a company tells us they have no competitors. Um, yeah. I, I get that what companies are trying to do is different and unique, but uh, I've yet to really come across a business where there were no no true competitors. Like maybe there, maybe you could make the argument there's no direct competitor, but you're competing with these incumbent businesses to take market share. So I'd say to say you have no competitors, I think typically shows you have a a lack of understanding of the market in which you're entering or operating. Um, the second of which would be, I, I'm the first to, to tell you how large of a, a bit of a market opportunity I believe there to be, but when you see a deck that starts projecting into the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in revenue, you know, within a couple of years and billions, multi-billion dollar valuations, you know, when they're looking to raise a million dollars to get there, like it, that's just a huge red flag for us too. I mean, I, look, I think you need to be optimistic about the prospects of your business, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs just, this, you know, to t- take the top-down approach of saying it's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to have 40% of all transactions in the industry because our product or our service is going to be better than everybody else's and, mm-hmm. and having taken that bottom-up approach of actually modeling out how in the heck they could possibly do that. And I think that to us is just, again, another big red flag of, of a management team that maybe doesn't understand their business. Yeah, one thing that always really gets me, I'd be curious uh, about your opinion here, is if I get a deck that's very, very long, um, that's a little bit of a red flag for me as well. Uh, I find that decks should be a kind of way to wet your whistle and and sort of make a meeting happen as opposed to explaining every detail of your company and projections. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think you're right. Although I, I've seen it done well in a larger deck format, but but the caveat to that would be, a, you know, those types of companies will typically have a teaser deck, which <laughs> talks more about the high-level opportunity business, which is something they would send us a, as, you know, as a first go-around. And then I've seen... A lot of companies now that'll do almost essentially kind of a full business plan in, in deck form, which I'm fine with. But I think to lead with that, you're right; it can get lost in the shuffle and sometimes, uh, you know, be a little bit cumbersome. It almost feels a little desperate to me. It's like I I'm not sure whether I'm going to get the meeting, so I just want you to read and know as much about my company now. Yeah, um, I think you're right, and I would also say too, on even on the decks, <laughs> proofread them. I mean, I think it's, it sounds like a really <laughs> they allowed, but. You know, we, we get so many decks sometimes that are littered with spelling or grammatical errors, and I just think that that also is a bit of a red flag. Maybe let's call it a yellow flag when you're looking at a deck, because it just if 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 a management team hasn't been able to to 
to, to properly vet and, and check the contents of their deck. It's a bit of a concern for us too. Got it. Yeah. Let's, let's look towards the future a bit. Um, what kind of trends are you looking at now? You know, what's the next wave? What, what are you excited about? I'm excited about a handful of things. Um, you know, we're big believers in, in cannabis software. We're big believers in cannabis brands. We like the hardware and accessory space. Cause I think it's a space that's growing at an incredibly rapid pace that a lot of people aren't really paying much attention to. Um, you know, we're big believers, I think long-term, and, and, and these are investments that, you know, may not even really sneak their way into, into the fund right now, are uh, the pharmaceutical opportunities, the, the drug development opportunities. I think there's a lot of early stage, um, you know, evidence out there of the efficacy of, of a lot of different cannabinoids and their treatment for a wide range of different ailments and illnesses. And I think that uh, those are investments with, you know, an incredibly long time horizon on them. And I think... Um, yeah. You know, even right now, it may be a little bit early, but at least you're starting to see more companies doing that type of drug development. You're starting to see money now being made available for those types of things. And I think that long term, um, that to me is an incredibly interesting and attractive uh, opportunity. Um, I, I think, think retail you know, could be interesting in Canada, again, with the caveat that we still don't really know yet with, uh, with, within which provinces we'll be able to privately own retail, which for, for most non-Canadians seems like a crazy concept in that a lot of our in, in, a lot of, in Canada, a lot of uh, liquor is actually retailed in provincially owned retail stores. Um, there's only a few provinces in the country where private owners can open a liquor store, which seems nuts. But wow. uh, we expect that to be largely similar for cannabis. So, um, But again, retail could be an interesting sector for us for sure. Yeah, I want to go back to the pharmaceutical discussion. I agree. I think there's uh, so many ways that we've yet to imagine that cannabis is going to be a medicine. And it's not a high-dose edible. It's probably more like a pill or you know, maybe, a, you know, a topical or a tincture, something like that, something we haven't seen yet. But I recently read a deck, uh, and the company will remain nameless, of course. But uh, over the period of, I don't know, a decade or so, they were looking to raise a hundred plus million dollars. And I thought to myself, you know, how could anybody put this kind of money in over that kind of horizon and get it out? It just seemed like a a never-ending thing. I mean, when you look at some of these uh, pharma projections and and business models, do you share that? Is it, it just seems so daunting to me? It is definitely daunting, and the unfortunate reality is to actually get a drug from a concept to a FDA-approved drug selling, like it could cost you forty, fifty, sixty, seventy million dollars to get through all yeah. the stages of trials, which is incredibly daunting. Now. I guess you know the way the pharmaceutical industry will work is if, if if you get a few of those winners, it could be you know billion plus dollar wins. Yep. So so there's that payback, but definitely a different level of risk appetite. And I'd say um, you know as the market evolves, I think you'll see more and more of those types of opportunities. And I think you I think you'll start to see more and more investors that are willing to to make those investments. But I think at this point, it's 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 still a challenge for a pharmaceutical for you know a potential prospective cannabis pharmaceutical company to raise. Um, to raise anywhere near that amount of money, which which is what which is what I think will still kind of hold the industry back for a little while, um, but I think some of that will 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 fix itself as this market evolves and and maybe you know again I'm looking at this from a bit of a Canadian lens, but you know you, you've seen a billion plus dollars has flown into cultivators, and I think as the cultivation market starts to level out, and you know a year or two years from now, there's kind of more of a clear view into winners and losers, and then. And people may start to reallocate portions of their capital to uh, 
to these other types of opportunities. So I do think that over time you'll see more money flow into that space, but I think it's going to be a, a you know a slower transition based on the the timeline and uh, the, the long timeline required to, to 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 fully navigate that path. And I think the the risk associated with doing it, but um, there will definitely be some really big winners there eventually. Yeah, I, um, just a, such a different, different type of investor. Uh, yes. I mean, the the investment into traditional plant touching cannabis, you know, a grow, a cultivator, something like that, the turnaround is pretty quick. I mean, it's a, it's a very profitable thing. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. Is this going to be like traditional life science funds? You know, who, who is going to be the ones that fund um, kind of that very, very necessary and very expensive portion of the industry. Yeah, I think it could be some of those life science funds. I actually even think chunks of it, and you're already seeing small chunks of it, could come from licensed producers that want to have an arm that mm -hmm. uh, focuses on that or at least have exposure to companies that are focused on that. Um, I think that over time, when you know, I, I think the Canadian market is going to become a very um, regulatorily friendly market to, to conduct that research in. I think, you know, there's other markets in the world that already have been. And I think as that becomes easier and easier, as more becomes known about the plant, I think you'll see more money flow into the space from, from sources that with which, you know, from which you would have never expected, including big pharma. I think there's no doubt that eventually they enter the space. Um, I think they could wait a little bit, but um, there's real dollars out there uh, that, that will enter the space when, when the timing is right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Last question and we'll, we'll get you out of here. Uh, you've been doing this a little while. Uh, sounds like you've been in, in the cannabis industry and, and kind of observing it with Afria and the different family offices for, for a while. What, what are some of the biggest changes that you see, even locally um, in Toronto, you know, from the time you started till, till today? I mean, wh where are we today? Well, I, th I think one of which is even just the, the general perception of the industry. I mean, I think, you know, when we were, you know, we were taking meetings in late 13, early 14 with, companies that had just got licensed or were just about to get licensed. And I mean, a lot of people wouldn't even take that meeting back then because it was, it was taboo. It was how, how, how in the heck could you invest in cannabis? Are you crazy? Are you, are, are you financing drug dealers? There was this general <laughs> confusion amongst people that didn't really understand the, the legislative framework. And I'd say even for that first, you know, I'd say for the rest of 14, even into 15, there was a little bit of that, um, you know, coldness to the industry. And then I think it was really after the election when Trudeau got elected that you started to see this, change in perception. And then well, I think we, we really started to see it was last fall when, when a lot of these publicly traded producers, you know, went on a crazy run and, uh, and a lot of people made money that people started to talk about it a lot more. And that was when, you know, you'd be in an Uber and the, the Uber driver would be talking about the, the weed stock he bought or his brother bought, or you'd be out for, at a restaurant and you couldn't help but overhear the tables you know, around you or talking about mm -hmm. the cannabis industry and these, and these stocks and things. And to, to me, that was when you started to see this perception shift um, away from being people being embarrassed to talk about the industry to people being really curious to hear more about it. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I'd say you know that 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 whole perception shift was dramatic. I'd say even in the last twelve months in the Canadian market, and then you know outside of that, I think you've seen um, people start to understand the market a lot more. People start to understand the potential size of the market a lot more. You know, people people are becoming more educated. I, I do think that you know that some of that sizzle that was there in these investments in, in cultivators, I think is kind of sizzle, sizzle, sizzled out a little bit in that the market is now a little bit more flat. There's more publicly traded competitors. There's, you know, the, 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 
the next wave of momentum, you know, if there is one, I think could come closer to July of next year, which is when the government is targeting to have adult use um, sales begin. Um, but I think finally you're starting to see a bit of a grounding there, which I think is good for the industry because I think, you know, it's not a word I'd use lightly, but I think people had that bubble feel back in the fall or early this year. And I think that, you know, now that things have normalized, some of those fears are gone. I think people can now sit back and make calculated investment decisions. And I think there's still plenty of money to be made, although I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I think the easy money in the cannabis market in Canada, at least, has been made. I mean, you, you could have invested in any and all of these cultivators in the last three years. And, you, and, and you know, you, you would have been up on almost all of them had you gotten out, you know, within the last six months. And I think that, that'll, that, that'll never happen again in the space in Canada, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to envision that happening in any space. So I think that, you know, with the easy money having been made, I think the next wave of, uh, I think there's still plenty of money to be made, but I think it's going to require, um, you know, more diligence and more patience and more, um, more focus by, by, by investors on, uh, on the types of opportunities within which they want to invest and, and eventually even more of a focus on, you know, profitability, not just growth. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that, that will come. I think what I heard you say is that it's a real legitimate industry now and not this crazy green rush, uh, get rich quick scheme. Yeah, and and I would say, at least from my perspective, that's that that feels to be quite different in Canada than than the feeling I get when I'm when I'm in the states. And that, you, you know, it's 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 more common to see the the uh, the soccer moms or the grandma, you know, buying Canada stocks up here. Whereas, you know, in in the U.S., I think there's a, still a little bit of that perception around the political, the federal political risk around the around the market and. You know, I don't think you see the as wide of a cross section of of people that are that are comfortable deploying capital in the space and 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 happy to talk about it. And yeah, I think obviously a big part of that is the is with federal legality in Canada, the fact that capital markets open up for a lot of these companies, and it becomes much easier for individuals to invest in these companies as opposed to trying to find a private opportunity in the states. So, so it's not a very fair comparison, but I think mm. without a doubt that that whole perception has shifted very quickly. Well, Americans are just more conservative than than Canadians generally. I mean, if you if you remove kind of the West Coast, if you take the middle and most of the East Coast, um, yeah, significantly more conservative uh, than what Canadians are, and I, I think that's why there's still the kind of hesitation, the the moral reserve about cannabis, which I think is, is bullshit. But you know, I'm a Californian, and they think we're we're crazy. California is its own country. We're like that's, France, that's, well, yeah, you guys France are about, or something. You guys are about as big as we are, right? So yeah. <laughs> I think you're right, although I think part of it is still that, uh, that, that I think people constantly underappreciate the importance of, of federal legality. I and mean, it's easy to say it, but mm-hmm. the, 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 by having a you know, federally legal landscape, the doors that that opens up in terms of being able to you know, bank with a conventional bank, being able to take a company public, being much easier to raise money and build and scale your business, being able to export your product to other federally legal mm-hmm. markets, which... I mean, you know, the, the ones that people are focusing on today is Germany with federal medical in place, Australia with federal medical in place. You know, there's a ton of countries coming online. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, you know, uh, some of the pessimism of the U.S. market I don't think is just tied to the conservatism. I think some of it's tied to the that, that not yet having that federal legality in place and, and the complications with, which can come with that. So I, I think that the you know, that's another main reason why we're very focused on the Canadian market outside of it just being a market that we understand much better, that we're much closer to, much more connected in. I think that um, 
you know, the, 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 the path to an exit for a lot of these companies or the path to a gain on an investment for an investor is, is much clearer in the Canadian market than I think it is in, in the U.S. right now. Yep. Well, listen up, America. We're behind. Uh, you you heard it firsthand here. I think that's as good a place to wrap up as any. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a great conversation and good luck to you. Sounds like you got some some really good early traction. Thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time.